Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 3, reading from verse 27 to 30. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. This passage is the conclusion, I believe, to the opening chapters, the first three chapters of Romans, in which Paul is refuting a false teacher. And this false teacher is arguing that the law is the means of justification. And we even in this passage get the feel for what Paul is doing throughout these first three chapters. That is, he'll give voice to this false teacher of works, you know. In other words, he's having this argument, he's having this discussion, and that's what he's doing throughout these first three chapters. And so Paul has not begun the main body of his letter. He's not presented his gospel as of yet in Romans. But he's setting forth and refuting the argument of this false teacher. And he's using the very logic of this teacher's words. He's refuting this teaching that maybe was first there in Galatia. You know, if Galatians comes right before Romans, in fact, it may be the same person or the same group of people that have shown up in Rome. And so Galatians and Romans are very similar. And so chapter 3 in this section clinches his argument there are no advantages to possessing the law. There are no advantages to being circumcised, as there would be in the argument of this teacher. And he's a Christian, or he's claiming Christ, but he's saying to be a Christian, you have to keep the law. And the problem in these opening chapters of Romans is that due to our own theological inheritance, coming primarily from Martin Luther, we may miss the main point of the first three chapters of Romans, in that we may be thinking that we're reading Paul when actually Paul is telling us what the false teacher is saying. He's giving voice to this teacher and allowing a long section of this opening chapter. He's you know, giving a stronger voice here to this teacher than he does in Galatians because this has become a real problem. And as I pointed out last week, Luther and justification theory meld the conditional and unconditional gospel. 
And Luther's justification theory is really the predominant understanding, you know, for understanding Paul and, and in particular the book of Romans and certainly the first three chapters. And this has been true for about 500 years. Romans 1 to 4 is the citadel of justification theory. That is, if you're going to prove the things that Luther is saying, you're going to turn to these chapters. 1 to 4, especially 1 to 3 maybe. As this is the text which serves as justification's frame. And in this then the law provides the foundation for understanding the work of Christ. This is part of justification theory. That Christ died to meet the requirements of the law. Justification theory promotes the notion of retributive justice that God's righteousness is measured and meted out by law and punishment and wrath, and these are primary rather than Christ being primary. And it requires a particular anthropology and epistemology in which man has the capacity to know of God, to know of his justice system, and yet he is, you know, totally depraved in the sense that he has total incapacity to do, to do what he knows he should. All of this is centered in Romans chapter 1 to 4. And so it's a system which requires that natural revelation provide the same parameters of understanding. That is that pagans, just by the law written on their hearts through available light, they have the same basic understanding as the revelation of the Old Testament in justification theory. It presumes then that Christian faith serves to complement and complete what is understood through the law. In other words, the gospel is founded and understood in conjunction with the law. So that works of the law Certainly, uh, in justification theory, they're judged inadequate, but the realization of this inadequacy is a necessary anteroom to entering into faith. In other words, you have to have this encounter with the law, you have to be depressed, I can't keep the law, and then you come to Christ. Each of these key points then finds scriptural attestation in Romans 1 to 3. In this, I'm afraid, a misreading. In 1.18 to 32, here is the frame of retributive justice. That is the pagan capacity to understand God and law through natural revelation. And then their degenerative failure and culpability are posed. And then 2, 1 to 8, the implications for Jews and Gentiles of retributive law-based system are universalized. And then 2.9 to 29, working within the logic of this system demonstrates that pagans who keep the law might be said to be the authentic Jews. That is, Paul is using this false teacher's own arguments and turning the argument against the false teacher who's privileging Jews and privileging the law. And Paul is saying, well, if it's a matter of keeping the law, then law-keeping Gentiles are the true Jews. 
And so he throws the benefits of the Old Testament law into question against this false teacher. And what becomes obvious is that Paul is not advocating the benefits of Judaism or the advantage of Jews. But he's arguing with a Judaizing teacher and not a, not a, a Jewish understanding. He's arguing with this particular false understanding, making this case and Paul turns the logic of this teacher to, as Douglas Campbell has put it, to hoist him on his own petard. That is, he's taking his argument and showing that his own argument is going to mean, oh, he himself is not saved. And so Paul is refuting the premises of this teacher who, like the false teachers in Galatia, is advocating a law-keeping Christianity. And in this, what Paul will refer to as an accursed gospel, the law is the means of being saved. That is, you're going to have to be circumcised. You're going to have to keep the food laws. So that Christians, according to this teacher, are, the, are those who keep the Jewish law. They're the Jews who fulfill the law. And Paul is making the same argument he made in Galatians. So if we get confused in Romans, we can go to Galatians and see the same argument. But now he is giving fuller voice to this false teacher so as to thoroughly refute his argument that the law confers advantage and benefits and is the foundation of the gospel. Paul argues that if possession of the law is thought to confer auto automatic benefits, look over at 2.22 to 23, and here he seems to be referring to a particular incident. This is actually recorded by Josephus. And in this, some Jewish swindlers have seduced and tricked a lady out of her money, and they've had her donate to the temple and they've run off with the money. Maybe one of the earliest charity scandals. And Paul says in 22 to 23, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Well, these particular Jews may in fact have seduced this woman. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Well, literally they've taken the money she donated to the temple and they've run off with it. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? He's not talking about Jews in general. He's saying, well, these particular Jews have done this. And it's not that all Jews do this, but the argument of the false teacher is that Judaism confers automatic benefits. And Paul points to these particular Jews to refute this notion. He said, well, it didn't benefit them, did it? And one might push the logic of the teacher, and that's what Paul is doing throughout chapters 1 to 4. He's suggesting that not only the righteous pagans are the true Jews, that is better than these particular Jews, but that the uncircumcised righteous are the truly circumcised, such that in the judgment some righteous pagans might end up condemning some unrighteous Jews. So he's not talking about Judaism in general. He's having this argument with this false teacher, using 
the teacher's retributive justice system and its notion that all are equally culpable and all are judged by their law keeping, Paul overturns the notion that the law is foundational to the gospel, that it's an automatic advantage, and it's turning the teacher's arguments against him. With this system, within this system, for God to offer leniency or grace, you know, this is what they're accusing Paul of. Look down in uh, 3.8. Paul says the teacher and these people are accusing him. Why not say, as we were slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Those accusing Paul of being against the law, antinomian, a libertine, but by the logic of their own system, they're caught in a strange web because now God offers grace to us Jews, or us Jewish Christians, you know. But Paul says in 3.7, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? In other words, he's making nonsense out of this teacher's arguments. Paul says to this false teacher, by the logic of your own system and by the scriptures you appeal to, you are condemned. And though you may claim the name of Christ, your system will not allow God to deliver you. If it's about the law and about works of the law, then God is going to judge according to works of the law. The scriptures state repeatedly and unavoidably here in chapter 3, he quotes a series of scriptures emphatically that all are sinful and comprehensively so. No one is in fact righteous. And Paul here in 3, 10 to 18, you know the series, it's, a, it's kind of quoting the Old Testament. It's echoing the Old Testament. It may in fact be quoting this teacher or echoing this teacher to show that his own argument and his own scriptures condemn him. And clearly by this point in Romans, it is apparent that the teacher's gospel is incoherent. Now, of course, what I'm saying is if we've missed the fact that Paul is dealing with this false teacher, then our gospel is going to be incoherent too. The false gospel, understood in its own terms, saves no one, not even its proclaimer, Paul says. And so Paul is not setting forth his gospel in these opening chapters. He's dealing, he's having to deal with this problem that has arisen in Rome, just as it did in Galatia, maybe the same person, and to miss that Paul is making an argument, which he then refutes. In other words, he, like this little argument that we read, he's presenting it, he's refuting it, and this is not the body of the text of Romans, which will come in 5 to 8. If we don't get this, we may confuse his gospel with what he calls the accursed gospel. And this is what has happened in justification theory. In the first instance, Paul is refuting this law-gospel fusion by showing its inherent contradictions. It's the false gospel, not his gospel, which holds to humanity's rational capacity 
to understand God and the law. And this is demonstrated in Romans 5. In Paul's gospel, those in Adam in 5.6 are helpless. They're in bondage. In 5.10, they are enemies of God. In 5.13, death reigns over those under the law. In 5.14, and even over those who have broken no law in particular. And so Paul does not hold to retributive justice. He's not describing or refuting Judaism because Judaism doesn't hold to that either. But he's refuting this teacher. Paul does not think circumcision or the law conveys benefits to the Jews. That's the position of this teacher. It's the teacher's argument, this false teacher, that pagans are peculiarly sinful and culpable as they have been enslaved, you know, by evil passions. Paul's going to say, well, we've all been enslaved. And so it's the teacher that is arguing that these pagans, and maybe he's referring to the Roman Christians who are not Jews, because probably what's happened in Rome, there's a kind of split in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so when he's talking about pagans, he may just be referring to Roman Christians who are not Jewish. But he has this understanding there's a clear line between the righteous and the unrighteous, and the law is the means of judging this. And so it's the teacher, it's not Paul, who imagines that people are storing up wrath because of bad deeds, or that they're restoring up reward through good deeds. This is 2, 4 to 5. He's quoting the teacher here. This is not Paul. Neither Paul nor Judaism functioned according to this works of the law measure. This is the way the teacher measures. Nor is Paul driving anyone to Christianity by demonstrating their helplessness before the law. This is what justification theory says. It says, oh, we encounter the law, we can't keep the law, we feel bad, then we turn to Christ. That's not what Paul is doing. Rather, he is demonstrating the contradictions of the teacher in imagining the law is the basis for God's justice and judgment. That's not what the law does. On this basis, the teacher imagines that as a law-keeping Christians, he is better than these lawless pagan Christians, maybe. The teacher imagines that humanity can be strictly divided then between circumcised law-keepers and those uncircumcised pagans who have succumbed to their evil desire. You know, this is 2, 6 to 12. These pagans and presumably maybe Gentile Christians making up the majority of the Roman church, he's saying, well, they need to repent because they're not circumcised, according to the teacher, not Paul. Not because they're not keeping the law of Christ, and that's what Paul is saying. It's faith in Christ. It's the law of Christ. It's the law of love. They're probably doing this. It's in the teacher's view because, according to his measure, well, they're not circumcised. And therefore, they're not law observant. Therefore, they won't be vindicated at the judgment. And so Paul projects into this argument. He's showing several inconsistencies in the argument. 
And one of the things he projects is, well, is there the possibility, according to this teacher, that there are righteous, unchristian pagans? This is, of course, according to the argument of this teacher. It's not that Paul believes there are righteous, saved pagans. It's that in the teacher's strict works righteousness theory, that it indicates this is a possibility through the law written on their heart. Paul believes people are delivered through Jesus Christ alone. No one in Paul's estimate, or really even in a Jewish estimate, can work their way to heaven. This is the argument of the teacher. Paul is not anti-Semitic. He's not setting aside Judaism. Nor does he see Jews as having an intrinsic advantage through the law. And Paul does not see people as even theoretically capable of knowing and keeping God's law and thus pleasing God, whether you're Jew or Gentile. According to Paul, you come to God through Christ Jesus alone. And on the other hand, Paul does not believe God is a wrathful, retributive God set to punish and destroy most of the human race. Rather, he considers that what happened in Adam is reversed in Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Paul does not believe people are capable of pleasing God apart from Christ. And so for him, there is no back door. There is no available light. There is no law written on the heart. There is no two-tiered law system. There is either the first Adam, who brings death, or the second Adam, who brings life, and there's nothing in between. Now where the teacher is focused on the wrath of God being poured out on humanity, 118. Paul is focused on the love of God poured out on humanity through Christ, 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is not that the enemies of God, which is inclusive of all humanity, can make peace through law-keeping. Dependence on anything short of God, whether it's law, ethnic identity, idols, anything short of God brings on its own inherent punishment. And this is chapter 7. Paul explains that the fleshly person exists in an agonized, wretched orientation to death and the law. They might think this empowers them to salvation, but it actually disempowers them. In 5.10 he says, they are God's enemies. As the sinful mind, whether it's the sinner, whether he knows it or not, he says it's hostile to God. Now in chapter 4, Paul will explain the role of the law and Jews through the, the, the life of Abraham. But in chapter 5, when he comes to the body of his letter, he sees all of humanity as entrapped by the force of sin and death. So in 5.12, Adam unleashed death. He says, death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. In 5.14, thus 
death reigned from Adam until Moses. And the only solution is one of apocalyptic deliverance, divine rescue. We can't rescue ourselves out of this bondage. And this is what Paul argues in you know, the agonized eye of chapter 7 even, cries out, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, there's only one answer. Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord has rescued us. This is and must be, then, the unconditional event. As human capacity in Paul's perspective has nothing to offer. And a pessimistic anthropology dictates an unconditional solution. God is the cause. There is no criteria for its activation, for its appropriation, or reception by humans. While what causality or agency is apparent, God is doing it. God is the cause. You know, look at 5, 6 to 8. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. God's doing everything. People who exist in this dire condition, and we all do, according to Paul, there are no exceptions, they are obviously incapable of accurate theological reflection or any positive action. They can't do what justification theory demands of them. They need to be rescued and then be taught about God and to behave correctly. And this is Paul's repeated emphasis on the deliverance that we have in Christ Jesus. And so Romans 1 to 3, apart from acknowledgement that Paul is giving voice to the teacher, this false teacher, and countering his argument, uh, these chapters are contradictory within themselves. They stand opposed to Paul's gospel presentation in chapters 5 to 8. The teacher sees law-keeping as a necessity for Christians. And Paul's refutation of this notion and the teacher's affirmation, the problem is these two things are combined in justification theory, effectively combining what is contradictory. The argument that the law is necessary and that the law is no, of no advantage. And of course, this is not the teaching of Paul, and really this isn't even the teaching of the false teacher, but justification theory fuses these two ideas together, imagining that the law is a necessary impetus to become a Christian. And with that, this recognition of who God is and our own sinfulness. Paul did not have such a, a low view of Judaism, and certainly the teacher didn't think this. And in turn, the teacher has a very high view of rationality, and Paul gives no credence to human rationale or ability. The fusion of these two, that's what's happened in justification theory. We fused the false teacher and Paul, and the fusion of the two, humans are all, they're capable of understanding God. They're capable of understanding the world. They're capable of understanding the law. They're capable of understanding themselves. Boy, that's a lot of capability. But then they are completely incapable of doing anything about it. It's a kind of contradiction. Justification theory, as a result, poses 
it posits a different problem than that pictured by Paul. Where Paul sees humanity as completely captive to the orientation to death, and thus deluded in their ability to understand God, themselves, or the world. He doesn't claim to understand any of this as a Pharisee. But justification theory pictures humanity as their own competent ground for knowing and understanding God in themselves and what people need. What they come to is, they well, they need help in regard to the law. Where Paul would set aside the law entirely against the teacher who thinks it a necessity, justification theory fuses these two with disastrous results. The law is the ground for Christ and the gospel. What did Christ come and do in this understanding? The work of Christ is one of law-keeping, law-satisfying, law-establishing, as the law informs and grounds the work of Christ in justification theory. Wherefore, Paul, Christ set aside the law. Justification theory has taken up the false gospel of this false teacher and makes the law foundational rather than seeing Christ as the one true foundation. And so for Paul, everything is grounded and understood in light of Christ. He has a retrospective view of creation. Now we understand what creation is about. A retrospective view of Abraham. We understand Abraham through Christ. A retrospective view of Moses. We understand Moses then through Christ, not the other way around. And a retrospective view of Judaism. Now we understand Judaism. But in the false gospel, it's the opposite. It's a kind of forward-looking view. Oh, we understand Moses and the law, and we have Judaism, and then Christ comes and, you know, in some way, we understand him through these things. So in this false gospel, Christ is understood through the law and is really reduced to a legal fiction. You know, this is Luther's phrase, that legally he covers human incapacity in the sight of God, imputed righteousness. Justification theory sides with the false gospel of the teacher in making law, retributive justice, and this forward-looking view, you know, understanding Christ through the law, rather than understanding the law through Christ, it makes these things primary. And so when we recognize that Paul is arguing with a false teacher, this lifts the burden of confusion, I think, surrounding Romans, surrounding justification theory. And justification theory then has a mistaken view in that it's taken the false teacher for Paul. And it's passed on a muddled and confusing gospel. And I argued this in a few weeks ago in conjunction with Galatians. I think that Paul would call what we often think of as the gospel in as much as it is connected to a law-based understanding, he would say that's no gospel at all. On the other hand, recognizing that Paul is giving voice to and refuting this false teacher, this is the first step in recovering the fullness of Paul's gospel in which Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life.
in which Christ alone is the one true foundation, in which Christ alone is the way in which we comprehend and understand who we are, what the world is, and what creation is about. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.